God, we just thank you that we can come before you and we can sing that great are you, Lord. You are our God and our Savior. And Lord, we've had a great opportunity to worship and praise you this morning to remember that you are God and that you did all for us by sending Jesus to save us and that we have life in you. And so we thank you for that. We just pray now that as we open up your word, that you would just open up each of our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. Uh, Lord, that the words that are spoken would be honoring and glorifying to you and that we would take forth from here and spread your word throughout our, our own kingdoms. So we just thank you. We praise you. We lift this time up before you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm always amazed when, uh, anytime before I've spoken, I'm always curious to see what the, uh, what the Holy Spirit's going to do ahead of time. And we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 this morning. And I couldn't have picked a better prelude than what we covered in the, the uh, worship service this morning, than what the Holy Spirit laid on Benoit's heart. And that was to kind of give us the idea that, yes, we are saved. We are saved because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And today we're going to actually look and seeing about the new life in Christ. So we're going to transition now from uh, the whole idea of being saved to how we live this new life in Christ. So uh, let me just start off. Let's just start this morning by reading the word of God. Let's read Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. And uh, hopefully you've got your Bible with you. You can turn to that. There's some Bibles in the pew or on your phone, probably uh, many forms. But let's read the word of God, and I'm reading Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 and the ESV, and it reads this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. May God bless the reading of his word. This is a great passage. It's a wonderful passage that I've had the joy of studying now for a little bit for several weeks, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, find as much enjoyment in it as I have. But as I read this, I came across a story a few weeks ago and I know that there's a lot of people in our, in our congregation that are in or have been in the real estate business. And I came across this story about a guy that had an old dilapidated building, and he wanted to sell this building. Now, it was in pretty bad shape. It had, you know, you can picture this old building. It had broken windows, graffiti all over it. You know, there's trash all over the floor. You've probably seen pictures in movies and stuff. You can have a, an image of what this building looked like. And he was touring a prospective buyer through this building, and as he showed him through it, he made the promise, he said, you know, just kind of sweeten the deal, kind of seal the deal type thing. He said, I promise, you know, I'll fix this up, I'll, I'll clean it up and, and get these things fixed and cleaned up. And the prospective buyer just looked at him and said, don't bother. And he looked surprised and he said, I've got something brand new I'm building here. I don't want this old building. I want the site. And so that 
whole idea of real estate and, and wanting the site, you know, location, location, location. Um, that's what he was interested in. And it reminded me of what we started to learn about last week in Ephesians chapter 4. And we started learning about how we need to put off our old self and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God. Our old self, it's kind of like that old building. Um, God isn't interested in that old self. He's not interested in that old building. He's got a brand new life he's created in those who are in Christ Jesus, those that have put their faith and trust in him. However, although uh, God does make us new creatures, we are still commanded to resist our sin nature. It's kind of that Christian paradox, you know, God's sovereignty and man's will both at work in us, which I think is why Paul writes this letter of Ephesians to believers. If you go all the way back to the beginning, when we first started this, we saw that Ephesians is written to the believers in Ephesus. So as we go through this, I'll I'll point that out several times. This is written to believers. It's written to you and I that we can live this way. Now, you might remember, if you've been here over the past several weeks, in the first 24 verses of chapter 4, we've covered some of the basic instructions for living a new life in Christ. And it's been all very uh, basic stuff. But now in verses 25 to 32, Paul's going to give us some specifics. We're going to get some very specific things on how we should be living day to day this new life in Christ. And he's going to do that by using five contrasting pairs of patterns of living. And in each of these patterns, he's going to give us the negative, and then we're going to go to the positive. So we're going to have these five contrasting patterns. So if you're trying to track how, how far we are into the sermon, you can just track what number we're on here, but there'll be five of them. Um, but we're going to start seeing that living this new life in Christ is going to be a startling reversal in how we live our daily lives and what we should be doing. So let's jump to the text. If you look at the very first verse in chapter uh, 4 and verse 25, you'll notice the first word is therefore. And we've actually covered therefore uh, several times here in the last week. John Tillery uh, covered that really thoroughly for us several weeks ago. I think John Preston brought it up in the Breaking of Bread service a couple weeks ago. And we had to look at what's therefore, therefore. Well, in this case, looking at that word, what is it there for? Well, in other words, Paul's telling us here, because God has done all of this for you, this is then how you are supposed to live. Now, you might be saying, well, what's God done for us? Well, it's everything that preceded that. But in particular, I think it's reminding us of verses 23 and 24 of chapter 4, where it tells us that we've been renewed in the spirit of our mind and that we're created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so because God has done all of that for you, this is how you ought to live. So Paul now begins to give us these five contrasting patterns of living. And the first one is found in verse 25. And that contrast is that we are to go from lying to speaking the truth. Let me read verse 25 again. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, when it says putting away falsehood, that's another way of saying, do not lie, don't tell lies. And if that sounds familiar, it should. We covered the Ten Commandments earlier this year, and if you happen to remember, the commandment number nine was, thou shalt not, you can say it, lie. Exactly, so it should sound familiar. So Paul's telling us that we're to put away lying, or some of your verses may say lay aside. The whole idea is, you know, like like when you take off your jacket and you just kind of lay it aside, we don't need it anymore. We're putting it to the side. And so Paul's telling us we need to put that away. 
Or maybe more recently, you were here for us for VBS. If you were here either on the virtual or here live, you remember that we told the kids that uh, we were teaching about uh, having faith without illusion. And we said that an illusion was something that seemed real but wasn't real. And the second part of that we said, or it seemed to be true but wasn't true. And so Paul is telling us these things that are, are falsehoods or lies or may even seem to be true that aren't, we need to put those aside. We need to set them aside and be done with them. And I think the idea that he's getting at here is that when he says put aside falsehood, it's more than just telling a direct lie. It's more than just telling something that's directly false. It means, it could also mean exaggerating things. It could mean when we add uh, falsehood to a truth to try to kind of cover some things. Let me give you an example. Think about filing your tax returns. Everything in your tax return is probably true. You're probably putting down everything accurately. But maybe you come to the end or you're like, you know what? If I just change this number a little bit, maybe I won't have to pay taxes this year. Or maybe I'll be able to get a bigger tax return and be able to afford uh, something that I've been targeting. Well, that's adding falsehood to a truth. We're to lay that aside. Or how about your boss or your teacher or your parent? asks you to do something, and you get it mostly done, but not quite all the way, but you kind of want to be off doing something else, so you tell them and it's done, knowing that, yeah, I'll, I'll finish it later on, right before I have to turn that in or something. But you're not quite telling them the truth. God, Paul is telling us, put those things aside. Put aside the direct falsehoods, put aside those direct lies, and put all of the stuff, put it aside, and be done with it. Now, if you don't think we're good at this as, as uh, human beings... Let me tell you about a study that was done all the way back in 1996. It was done by a psychologist at the University of California in Santa Barbara, a lady named Bella DePaulo. And she did a study on how often we lie. She put a number to it. And through her study, she came to the conclusion that on average, people lie once or twice a day. It's like, oh, that was kind of shocking when I read it. It's like, a day? The funny thing I thought in this was she said out of the 147 original participants that she interviewed for that, 140 of them said that they lie. There were seven people that said they don't lie at all. I think we can only imagine if those seven people were actually being truthful on that, so, um, especially given the results of the study. But it was interesting because in her study, she found that many of the lies or many of the falsehoods that people teach, as she put it, were fairly innocent or even a kindness. Uh, think of something uh, she noted, like when someone says, well, I told them that they looked good, but I really didn't think they did, but I just told them that to, to be kind. Or um, she told, uh, told another one where um, maybe someone says, yeah, my spouse is doing great at their job, when in reality, well, they got laid off a few weeks ago, but I didn't really want to admit it. I was just trying to save a little embarrassment there and stuff. Her point was, she said the participants in the study were not aware of how many lies they actually told because they were so ordinary or expected that people just didn't even notice them. But Paul's telling us here, we need to observe what we're saying and we need to put aside all that falsehood. It needs to be laid aside and put aside in this new life in Christ and we need to speak the truth. Now, I want to give you a, a small example of, of a little example of speaking the truth. And I thought this was funny. A couple, couple weeks ago, uh, I was cooking at uh, boys camp. And uh, my wife Jennifer and my sister Karen were there. And we were all cooking. And one night, we were serving cookies. And camp has some fantastic cookies. 
Um, but little known fact, we aren't actually making the flour and the eggs and everything in the back. They're from a box, and we, we heat them up. But one of the kids was really enjoying his cookie, and he came up to my sister, and he's like, these are fantastic. And he looked at her drink and said, did you make these cookies? Well, she had a choice right there. She could have taken full credit for those cookies. She could have said, yep, I made those cookies. And, you know, let him think that, you know, she was back there mixing everything together, forming the cookie and putting it. But she looked at him. She said, you know, I got to tell you the truth. She said, we don't actually make the cookies. We actually pull them out of a box and put them on a tray and we heat them up for you so that you can enjoy them. I thought that was pretty good. Her telling the truth did not, in, did not diminish that uh, young man's enjoyment of his cookie at all. But I tell you what, it did increase my opinion of my sister because she was being faithful to speaking the truth even in the little things. And I think that's one of the keys. Even in those little things, if we start practicing in our daily life speaking the truth even in those small things, we're gonna, when it comes to the bigger things where it's really going to matter, we're going to still speak the truth. And so uh, that's just a, a small example of that. But if you notice in verse 25, when Paul tells us to speak the truth to one another, he's actually quoting Zechariah 8.16. And that verse says, These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. So he's making this quote from the Old Testament. And it got me to thinking, what are some of the other places we think about truth in the Bible? Well, you can fill in the blanks for me. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the... Very good. The truth and the life. And in John 14, 17, we're told that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. You're two for two. Let's see if you can get on the third. All right. John 17, 17 tells us that God's word is. You passed the quiz. Very good. <laughs> but as we've noticed and as we've learned earlier, uh, John Tillery pointed out a couple weeks ago, telling the truth doesn't mean that we have to say everything that we know without regard to consequence or impact. We've got to think about those things. If you remember in Ephesians 4.15, remember it tells us we have to speak the truth in, who knows what, in love. Yeah, we've got to examine our motives, the purpose for what we're saying. And that can be a hard, time, hard thing to do. Sometimes we've got to get our, our brain to engage before our mouth does. Uh, and that can be difficult. But we need to do this and speak the truth in love as part of this new life in Christ. Now we get to the end of verse 25, and Paul tells us why we should be speaking the truth. If you look at it, it says... We are members one of another. Simply put, once again, this is talking to fellow believers. We are members of one another. As members of one another, we affect each other. We can't build each other up if we're not telling the truth to each other. The church will not function properly if we're not speaking the truth. And we're going to lose our testimony with the world if they look inside and see us telling lies and falsehoods to one another. So this is speaking to believers. We are the body. We are the church. And we need to speak, be speaking the truth to each other. So we speak the truth. So Paul goes on, though, after telling us to speak the truth, he goes on in verses 26 and 27 to the second contrasting pattern of living. And we're to go from unrighteous to righteous anger. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, verse 26 is really interesting because you would have thought it said, don't be angry. But that's not what it says. It says, be angry, but with the qualification of, yet do not sin. Anger can be good or bad, depending on your motives and on your purpose. 
in itself, anger is not a sin. God can be angry. You know, look at Deuteronomy 9.8 or Deuteronomy 9.20 or Psalm 2.12. The holy anger of God is part of his judgment of sin. There is a place for anger. Now, when our anger is of malice or jealousy or hatred or vindictiveness, that's the anger that we need to put away. That's the stuff that's not what we're talking about here. Those things are usually self-centered, and those are the things we need to put away. But this does leave room for righteous anger. It could be anger at sin. It could be anger at evil. Uh, think about Jesus and the money changers in Matthew two, uh, Matthew uh, 21 or John 2. You know, what did Jesus do? He had a zeal for the house of the Lord, and people weren't treating the house of the Lord right. And he had an anger, and he overturned the money changers' tables and kicked them out so that proper worship could be restored. That was an example of, of a righteous anger. I think John Tillery actually gave us a great definition. This about three weeks ago. I wrote it down in my Bible, and he said, when it says, be angry, he told us that it refers to one whose anger is controlled by God. I wrote that one down in my Bible. Let me read it again. You might want to write it down as well. When it says, be angry, be angry refers to one whose anger is controlled by God. So we see that it is possible to live this new life in Christ, to be angry, and not sin. But what if we do sin? That's probably going to happen in our lives. So Paul gives us another pattern for living this new life in Christ. And he tells us that if we do sin in our anger, we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. Now, this does remind me of kind of a funny story. Um, there was a couple of brothers, and they had been and arguing and fighting, and they were really, really angry with each other. Now, this could have been me and my brothers when we were kids, and any of you that have siblings could probably relate to that same scenario. But these two boys were angry with each other. And the mom, being a loving mom, that night you know, realized one of them was still just really angry and holding on to that anger. And so she lovingly went to the child, and she said, you know, we shouldn't let, our son, our anger, let the sun go down on our anger. And she, she tried to talk him down and calm him down, and, and she finally got to the end where she thought he was going to be calm and he and she said is there something you feel like you need to do right now and he looked at her and kind of exasperated inside and said yes he said i just have one question and so she looked at him and she said what and he said how do i make the sun stop from going down <laughs> now some of us want to hold on to our anger we want to hold on to that anger and not let it go but in verse 27 paul tells us why we shouldn't do that he tells us because it gives the devil a foothold in our lives. We don't want to give the devil a foothold. That's why we let go of it. John MacArthur put it this way. In any case of anger, whether it is legitimate or not, if it is courted, advantage will be taken by Satan. Or how about Aristotle? He has a famous uh, quote on anger, and he put it this way. Anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everyone's power to do. And it is not easy. See, Aristotle knew this was not an easy way to, lot, to, to live a life. But in the new life in Christ, we can live this way. We're told to give this way. And, and I know that we have the victory because it tells me in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about the new life in Christ. That's where we get the victory to do this. That's where we get the victory to live this way. 
And so Paul goes on from there. And he goes into verse 28 and he gives us the third contrasting pattern of living. And that is that we're to go from stealing to sharing. Let me read verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, stealing is a growing problem. I think we see it more and more in the the news and, and out there. All the way back in 2010, there was a study done on the cost of stealing. And in 2010, retail theft amounted to 40 billion, that's billion with a B, 40 billion dollars in the U.S. And when they put that down to a figure, they said, you know what, that 40 billion dollars equated to an extra 423 dollars to the shopping bill of every American family. So that was the cost in 2010. I can only imagine that's gone up by, uh, in the last 11 years. Or fast forward to 2019. Here's one you can probably relate to. In 2019, security org, uh, security.org did a survey, and they found that 38% of all their uh, participants indicated they felt that a package had been stolen from their porch after it had been delivered. Well, given the explosion of package delivery in 2020 uh, because of the pandemic, can you imagine that number's gone down at all? Now, you can find plenty of stories about porch pirates uh, all over uh, the news and YouTube. There's, there's plenty of uh, things out there. And it's odd because it seems that it's just a game now. It doesn't even seem that when somebody gets caught, there's even remorse or shame for doing that. And if stealing, not stealing sounds familiar, that's another one that should sound familiar. If you remember in our study of the Ten Commandments, remember the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. We've covered this. But Paul points out that we're to put those things aside. That's what we're not supposed to be doing. And he points out the alternative to the new life in Christ. The way we should live is that we're to turn from stealing and we turn to labor or we turn to work and to sharing. Now, you might have expected Paul to say, let him work so that he can take care of himself and not be tempted to steal. But scripture takes it to a whole nother level and he points out that we give up stealing, we work so that we can share with others. We share with others that, who though, you know, though they may have done hard work themselves or they may have faced an incapacity or um, some sort of uh, devastation in their lives, they are in need. And we work so that we can help those people. And verse 28 also tells us that our work should be honest or good. This refers to the quality of our work. We should be doing a good work. And also, verse 28 also tells us that we work with our own hands. In other words, we are responsible for doing that work. We're to put away that stealing, and we work with our own hands so that we can share with others. I love the way William MacDonald put it. He said, only the, power, only the positive power of grace can turn a thief into a philanthropist. Isn't that the truth? And let me just say, if you've ever been a thief, maybe you've stolen Or maybe you're dealing with that now. It could be something you're you're facing in your life right now. As with every one of our sins, find your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember one of the last things he did on his life in this earth? He looked at, on the cross, he looked at a thief right next to him and forgave him and told him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So if that's a sin you're struggling with, find your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's new life in Christ. We speak the truth. We have a righteous anger, and we share with those in need. Well, Paul's going to go on now in verses 29 and 30 and give us the fourth contrasting pattern of living. 
And that is that we're to go from corrupt to edifying words. Let me read those verses. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And when you see giving up corrupting talk or unwholesome talk in there, the idea, that the word behind that is often used in the Greek as something to mean spoiled, or it typically is used for spoiled food or, or spoiled vegetables or meat or something like that. In other words, what Paul is saying is that corrupting talk should be as repulsive to the Christian in our mouths as it would be to have spoiled food in our mouths. That's how we put aside corrupting talk. It should have no place in our mouths. But in this new life in Christ, we train ourselves, we train our tongue to, te- to speak what is good, what's good, as it says, for edification, desiring to impart grace to all who hear us. Now, some of the examples, what are some of the corrupt talk that we would put away? Maybe off-color jokes, uh, maybe vulgar things. How about profanity, lewd or crude stories that we might tell? Things like that. We put, again, we put all that stuff aside. And I think it has probably an even broader meaning than that. And maybe it's just worthless talk or idle or talk or things. Remember, it's telling us that what we are saying should be edifying each other and speaking love to one another. We should be building each other up. That's what we should be doing. And with God's help, we can train ourselves to, to talk that way. And it's interesting, if you remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 24, where does that talk come from? Well, Jesus told us that for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the answer to this is, if we're going to change our speech, we better change the heart first. Our hearts better be full of blessing. The new life in Christ should be noted by speech. That's edifying, it builds up, it's encouraging, uh, it's uplifting to those who we're talking to. Our words should minister grace, as it tells us, uh, to draw others closer to Christ. It should be fitting the occasion. I like that one. Think about what you're saying. As we've said, just because we know something or something is true doesn't mean we have to say it. Sometimes it's better off just to leave things unsaid. Make sure what you're saying is fitting the occasion. And it should give grace to the listener. It's an incredible idea. Think about it. We're, We're saved by grace. We're kept in grace. And should we not also live and speak in grace? As it tells us in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may may know how you ought to answer each person. So we go from corrupt words to edifying words. And then Paul also tells us that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. It tells us we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. How can we displease him? Well, when we're not living... The life in Christ. When we're not living this new life in Christ, it does uh, grieve the Holy Spirit. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, let me, I, I think he put it better than I ever could have. He put it this way. I think I now see the Spirit grieving when you're sitting down to read a novel and there is your Bible left unread. You have no time for prayer, but the Spirit sees you very active in worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things more than you love him. Spurgeon went on to say, The Holy Spirit's grief, it's not of a petty, oversensitive nature. He is grieved with us mainly for our own sake. For he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads the sorrows in our sins. 
He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we face and how much communion we're going to lose. Strong, powerful words. But it's one of those ways we need to go from corrupt to edifying words and not grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul then goes on and gives us the fifth, the final of these contrasting patterns of living in verses 31 and 32. And again, it's going to be the negative to the positive. Verse 31 is going to be the negative and 32 is going to be the positive. Let me read them. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's amazing. Once again, he starts off by telling us where to put away these things. Everything he lists there in verse 31, we put away. Listen to that list again. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. These are all things that are going to destroy relationships. They're going to destroy the church if we let them in. So we need to put them away. We need to put them off. Thinking of the one in bitterness, Warren Wearsby said, Bitterness in the heart makes us treat others the way Satan treats them, when we should be treating others the way God has treated us. Uh, those are things that are going to destroy. But if we put them away, we won't do those things. Uh, Whereas we went on again and said, an unforgiving heart is the devil's playground, and it soon becomes the Christian's battleground. But then we get to verse 32. We put away all those things from 31, and we get to verse 32. And Paul tells us the things we should be doing. We should be showing kindness. We should be tenderhearted, and we should be forgiving. You know, being kind, it actually will show Christ's character in us. Reminded in Romans 2 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. When we show kindness to one another and we live through kindness, well, one, I think it's going to uh, lead to repentance in our own life for our sins, but it could also be a testimony to others. It could be a, them seeing God's character through you. And that, and it might lead them to repentance as well. So we're to be kind. It also tells us we're to be tender-hearted, meaning compassionate, uh, showing empathy for one another's needs. We do this, you know, when, a lot of times when people are facing distresses, we show them sympathy. Uh, we show thoughtfulness. We show care not only for each other, we care about each other and for each other. And we can be really good at this. A lot of times we're really good at this when people are sick. You know, if there's a, a devastating event that takes place. People jump in and, and, and help out right away. They have they show a lot of compassion and a lot of tenderness and compassion. But I think what Paul's getting at here is that we need to do that same thing all the time. We need to do that every day, not just when there's a tragedy in life, but how about when life is good? Or maybe you're just passing through an uneventful time of life. Are we still showing and being tender-hearted with one another? That's what Paul's getting at, to do this all the time. It's a pattern of living. It's how we live the new life in Christ. And then he goes on and tells us that we should be forgiving of one another. What could be more basic to the Christian life than to understand and practice forgiveness? Paul pointed out that God forgave us. How could we, who have been forgiven so much, not forgive others? Sometimes that's not easy. Sometimes some of the things done to us are very, very hard. But God, uh, Paul's reminding us that God forgave us. And can we not forgive the things done to us when he's forgiven us so much? 
If you want to study this some more, I would suggest going to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17 is a parallel passage to this. And you can study this in greater depth on your own, and it's, it's a really rich passage. Or I'll give you a book. Uh, if you like to read books or listen to audio books, uh, I'll give you a book. There's a, uh, a book called The Normal Christian Life, and it's by a guy named Watchman Nee. Uh, and it's available. You can get it on Amazon. I've got it on Audible. Just go right to chapter 4 if you want to get to this part. Chapters 4, 5, 6 are all about living a life in Christ. Uh, just some incredible teaching in that. So that's a, uh, the normal Christian life. It's actually a study on Romans, but you'll see a lot of the parallels to what we've been talking about today. But this new life in Christ, we show kindness, we show tenderheartedness, we show forgiveness. If we do those things, we're going to be living everything that Paul has told us about in this passage. We're going to achieve that. So let me go back to where we started. Are we trying to hold on to that old life, to that old dilapidated building that was our life? Or are we going to live the new life in Christ that we have in Christ? We have that life in Christ. In closing, let me just tell you about Jeff Minji. Jeff is a pastor at Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. It's a church that our son Cody goes to. And I love the way he closes his sermons. Every sermon I've heard of his, he's closed the same way. And he finishes and tells them, you are not dismissed. And at first, it's kind of shocking. Wait a minute. We're not getting out of here. He tells, though, you're not being dismissed. You're being sent. And I think Paul would tell us the same thing about this passage. You're not being dismissed today. You're being sent. You're being sent to live the new life in Christ, to speak the truth, to be angry and do not sin, to be one whose anger is controlled by God, to share with those in need. You're being sent to use edifying words and not grieve the Holy Spirit. And you're being sent to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you. We thank you that we have your word. We have your, uh, your wisdom to study. And Lord, may we apply it to our lives. As we go forward from here, Lord, may we be sent and take it to the world that we would do these things that, uh, as you've told us, that we would live in this way, that we would live in Christ each and every day. And, Lord, that we would do the things that we've looked at. So we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we have forgiveness in Jesus and that, Lord, we do have this new life in Christ and we can live this because we have victory in Jesus Christ. So we thank you. We praise you. Lord, help us to take this word forward and to share it with others now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.